China Matters, a China Institute podcast. I'm your host Jia Wang. Today, my guest is Mr. Bob Taz. Mr. Taz recently published a memoir of his remarkable personal story, from surviving Japanese occupation in Hong Kong as a young orphan to an exciting life journey in finding fulfillment and success in work and family. Welcome to the China Institute,、uh, Mr. Taz, and it's such a pleasure to Would have you. Would you like you. to call me something less formal? <laughs> sure, Bob. Is that okay? Yes. Yes. yes.、Um, so, welcome, Bob, to the China Institute. You have written this wonderful memoir called "Lost in the Battle for Hong Kong," and it basically tells your fascinating life story. So, we're so honored to have you today to chat with us about this book and also about your. Your life from Asia to Canada, so it's such a pleasure to have you. So you mostly grew up in Hong Kong and survived the Second World War and the Japanese occupation, along with this amazing city. So could you give us a sense of what Hong Kong was like back then when you were little and living there? Well, that is a, a, a difficult、uh, response、uh, because at that age. My world was normal. Nothing was spectacular, and nothing was unusual. Like the population that I was exposed to were the indigenous population, so I was comfortable with them more than I was with the expatriate company, because they were my companions. And the children, of course, they have a word for foreign, for foreigner, which is okay. But I didn't know what it meant. Well, I knew that I was had a label. I would say it in Cantonese, "guai jai," but that's okay. They laughed at me, but after an initial、um, introduction to to my surroundings, children being children, we played together. You know, so I was blonde, so I had blue eyes. They laughed. After that was finished, we can play marbles together. And we can chase each other, and especially when I, with my ama, and visiting、uh, the communities in the surrounding uh, uh, Kowloon little villages. So I was so happy. I had no other friends but those people. So I was. So how to explain that? It was part of my life, and I was not unhappy because of it. Knowing at that stage that my mother was still in the background, of course I didn't know my father, but my mother was there, even though I didn't have much communication with her. In fact,、uh, I think my older sister had mentioned once that there were some times that mother had to speak to the armor to,、uh, to interpret what I'm trying to tell her. I was speaking in Cantonese, and my mother didn't understand that. So, Akai, what is Robbie saying? The Chinese, as far as I can remember, have difficulty pronouncing the letter R. So I was Lobby instead of Robbie. <laughs> so, but being young, I was very versatile. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And、uh, you had a lot of fun when you were growing up, and and had a、yes. lot of adventures. And as you mentioned, and also in your book,、uh, you have、um, fondly recalled the Ama, or、uh, her name is Akang. Akang.、Uh, Akang.、Yes. In your case, and、uh, and she's a domestic worker. She's、yeah. a Hong Kong local, and she was hired into the family to help with、uh, domestic chores. And she also provided a lot of love and and care. Uh, for you,、um, and it's actually quite common at the time in Hong Kong to、uh, have a, a domestic worker or a few of them、uh, that are locals,、uh, and then、uh, they work in a expat family.、Um, and there are also other Hong Kongers are doing other maybe line of job in in Hong Kong. So,、um, how do you perceive that kind of a dynamic between the Expat families and, and and workers and the the Hong Kongers at a time. Well, it wasn't difficult. My mother was Russian, and a newcomer to Hong Kong, so she naturally gravitated towards the, the Russian community. And there were many of them there, fleeing from northern China, especially from Harbin,、uh, fleeing the revolution in Russia and then the civil war. And then,、uh, and then this, the, the, the railway—they lost their jobs when the communist、uh, Stalin took over Russia. So, so my mother was one of those who fled northern China, with one with with one difference.、Um, she was Russian. My father was Austro-Hungarian, and he came to China from a different direction for different reasons, which I know nothing about. He had to be a young man because I calculated his date of birth, and、uh, he must have left、uh, Europe when he was about 21. So he just finished school. Maybe he never finished his post education. I don't know, but it ended up in Beijing. And then he met my mother. When they got married, straight away she was no more a displaced person, what they call DP. So she had a diplomatic. Protection from、uh, Austria with her husband. So, from that sense, when they arrive in Hong Kong, she still had her. Of course, father was on his way. Apparently, he was going to be. He was on his way back to Europe. And I understand, after a lot of research, many years, that he was ill at the time, on his dying actually, and the ship that they booked on to go to Europe. The doctor refused to accept him as a passenger because he wasn't going to live. So anyway, so so that is a stage that faced me, and so unfortunately, being young and、uh, you know adaptable and without any preconceived or pre-experiences of any other existence, that was normal. That's how I I survived. And I was not unhappy. Mother made sure of that, and Akai was my my best friend. So,、uh, so there are there are a lot of Hong Kongers working for、um, maybe non-Hong Kong families, and、uh, and then did you sense there's sort of a sense of almost a caste system in Hong Kong, where you know different people are having different places. Uh, to kind of to work and live in the society. Well, my observations at the time was 
Now, Hong Kong was under pretty rigid colonial standards. And of course, there was discrimination. Unfortunately, the, 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 the masses were the victims of it, and the elite expatriates were the beneficiaries. And when I went out, or if Akai would take me to the market, and maybe going to the bus, the indigenous were in the back of the bus, and, um, and the privileged one on the front. So where, where would they put me? So I mixed with the population. And that's how I, I got to love them and accept them and learn all what I knew through them, not through the expatriate society. I had very little exposure to that. And my book, I think, as it progressed, confirmed that. Even as a young teenager, I was still drawn to the indigenous population. So, I mean, that's, uh, that provides you with a very unique perspective uh, exactly. into the society. Exactly. I respected them. I learned the customs. And the thing that impressed me very, very much was the reverence towards the elders. And I can still remember some of the ladies with bound feet. I can still remember the men had the, the cues. I can still remember that, but that vanished soon after. So to me, that is when I see pictures, and, uh, and that brings back memories. But they're not critical. They are remembrances. And that's how, how I live my life and benefited from them. And you also speaks the language really well yes. as a Cantonese. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. So you can communicate uh, and talk to the locals and, and just like part of them. My communication was mostly one-sided. I think I was hesitant in speaking it at that age, but I understood it perfectly. And uh, maybe I didn't have the confidence that I could, that I mastered it well, but I think I did, but I was just self-conscious. And they would talk to me I would totally understand because Akai did nothing but Cantonese with me. Right, and and I remember you told one incident when Akai took you to her community, and then you're this only um, kind of a white boy with blonde hair and blue eyes. You really stood out. <laughs> and then there, even the her family would take you to show off among their neighbors. Yes, yes, because in those days the the expatriates seldom explored the backwoods and the villages, even though nowadays there was no distance. But in those days, there was no transportation. You either take a bus or you have a car or you go by horseback or rickshaw. But Akai, of course, she, I don't think Akai came from Hong Kong. I think she, she was with a family from Canton. So I don't know how far back they had her. But uh, surviving photographs shows her before Hong Kong. So, um, so she must have had other dialects as well. Maybe deep down I have some knowledge of that without knowing it. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, Hong Kong's seen waves of uh, migration, uh, immigration from, uh, from the mainland, from uh, Canton, but also some other parts of China. Yes. Um, after the war as well, right? And uh, so it's, it's quite a cosmopolitan uh, yes, city. Yes, it, it is. Well, I think I was going to tell you something, as you probably know from history, was 
1841 that Hong Kong was acquired. And then I think 1868, I think Kowloon was uh, ceded. And then after that was a new territories with a 99-year lease. And the thing is that Hong Kong was given a name before was one word, Hong Kong, was not two words, was one word. That was changed by the colonial secretary, I think, in 1860s, in the 1860s, that they separated the two words. Now, we know what it means in, in, in the Chinese language, Hong Kong, you know, fragrant harbor. And, uh, and if you look at the Hong Kong-Shanghai Bank, even to this day, they have not changed it. They kept it together. You look at the sign, Hong Kong-Shanghai Bank Corporation. Hong Kong is one word. That goes back to the origin. Did you know that? No, yeah, I didn't know that. It's <laughs> fascinating, yeah. Yes, so that, that is unique. And that's a knowledge, it's just general interest, but uh, very few people know that, yes. Yeah, wonderful. And, and then, of course, you were orphaned at age seven. And, and then uh, when you were at this boarding school um, during the war, you were essentially left outside by the Guardian to sort of find your own way around uh, in the middle of a war. And you have really experienced a lot of unimaginable tragedies and, and hardship early on in your life. Yet in your book, you have often spoken about these simple, joyful moments uh, in your life, including when you lived in the internment camp, you, you called the life idyllic <laughs> at some point. Yes. And, and how did you manage to find the simple pleasures uh, in life in times of such immense adversity? Yes, it's a good question, Gia. Uh, Let's turn the clock back a little bit to when mother was stricken that night. It was nighttime. We were on Nathan Road. My stepfather had passed away. They were married for maybe one year, and he had an accident off the horse. And mother moved from the district to Mata Way and moved to Nathan Road. I was about six years old, and I started school, nearby school, called the DGS, Diocesan Girls' School. And they take elementary boys as well, up to a certain age. So I was enrolled in that school. What uh, what happened from there uh, was a new life. Akai diminished her presence. I guess mother had hardships, and she had Akai coming in as needed. She wasn't a live-in servant anymore. So in that year, that was when mother was stricken. So I was seven, just seven, when she was hospitalized. Now, mother had one task that she promised in her marriage that she would make sure of that the, the children would be all uh, in the religion of the father. I was the only one left that hadn't been uh, attended to. So she approached one of her friends to, uh, when she was hospitalized, she said, would you uh, make sure that uh, Robbie would get baptized and get his confirmation and first communion and everything, look after him. So that person agreed. But I don't think they were long friends, just new friends. 
So there's no bong. And that was my first exposure to abandonment. Because that person, and I have not, no resentment towards a person, and in fact, later on, I showed her a lot of generosity out of gratitude. That's your godmother? My godmother. And, uh, and she was divorced. Well, I think she was divorced. I don't know. Maybe she, her husband died. So when I was entrusted into her care, because the flat in Nathan Road had to be abandoned, all the furniture gone, all mother's artwork gone, I didn't know where things were. So living with Godmother, the first thing she told me when I was, I was about seven and a half or less, that she didn't like children. So I, sh I was shook up. I said, well, why tell me that? And secondly, she said, you're a big boy now, so you, you, your name will have to be, proper name is Robert, and we'll call you Robert. Wow. So I was really stunned. So from that point, I think I lost my childhood. I had no more anchor, and I said, I was on my own now. And my original title for my book was called A Lifeboat Without a Rudder. The lifeboat was temporary shelter, but I had no way of steering it. had to go with the winds. And, and then I changed it to this. Uh, this year, actually, I changed the title. But for seven years was Lifeboat Without a Rudder. That was a theme that I used to describe my emotional journey during that time of my life because I had no control. Right. So, so there's a lot of curveballs been throwing at you without, of course, your any ability to control it. It just happens to you. And I didn't know. I didn't know when I was hit because it was all new to me. I mean, this, my biggest support, Akai, was no more there to shelter me. And, uh, and of course, mother. I took her for granted. We all take our mothers for granted until she's gone. Right. So, yeah. And and you also talked about kind of lower expectation in in you know what you may receive. And then but at the same time you were able to spot those bright um, spots in life and, and still have fun and enjoy uh, probably good laughter or some toys and, and friends. Yes. Going back again to the time that I had my first communion, mother was still alive. My health must have been deteriorating. And for some reason, I found myself in the same hospital as my mother. That was to nurse me back to health. And that was the summer of 1939. So, but that was a happy time because I was back with mother. Nursing care was there for me. I was so happy. And then when she died, I was back in school, but this time no more as a day student, but as a boarder, because nobody wanted to take me in their home and raise me, so I was a boarder. That was the beginning of the most hard time of my whole life, was right then. Two and a half years of that, seven and a half. And so in that town, there's about five events that helped to give me some pleasure. And, and I talk about it in my book. And uh, the thing is that I started to withdraw within myself because when those pleasures ended, 
I was so devastated that I refused to accept any more kindness because I knew it was going to be temporary. I didn't want to go through the trauma of, of separating happy moments and back into an empty school. You're trying to protect yourself. I was protecting yeah. myself, exactly right, you see? So, so that was a very, very tough period of my life, but I, but I, had, to, I had to perk myself up because I, I didn't want to succumb to such, such oppressive thoughts. So, so that's when I decided to amuse myself and uh, relate to people. I would see I would see other students coming, other boarders coming in. In those days, boarders would come in and, and in on uh, on Sunday night, and then on a Friday night they go back home, you know. And then summer holidays they would stay with the families. I used to observe the interaction between boys my age and their parents, and say, I don't have one, but I wasn't resentful. I said, well, that's the way it is, you know, so I just turned my eyes away. At first, I used to cry to see them, but so happy. After that, I said, well, what's the point? I'll go throw a ball around somewhere if I can find one, you know? <laughs> so, so that's how I survived. And so when the war came, I was already seasoned to be... To seasoned survivor, in a way. Yes, that's part of my survival mechanism. And then when the war came, it was such a change in life. It was exciting for a boy, especially. It was exciting. There's bombs falling here, and and the people running, and the, the houses shaking with bombs detonating, and not far away. To me, that was that was exciting. Are you uh, not afraid? No, 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 no. I, I, my, my biggest concern was that uh, who do I report to? Who do I say? Because. I had school rules, and now the school is shut off. And uh, and who do I report to? I, I I was I was nowhere, and that's how I survived the war. That was the happiness that I had no obligations. I had guilt at first, but after that, no guilt, extra happiness. <laughs> you know. And, and of course, uh, some adults disappointed you by, you know, not maybe um, um, taking care of you when when the the Japanese are getting closer. But you were also met with kind uh, families uh, of other expats uh, in Hong Kong. Yes, yes. The, the the key thing, and I dedicated my book in in more places than one to the Sewell family. He was a professor at the university up in uh, China. And he loved China, and and but none of his children were born there. But he loved China, and even after the war, he returned to China to teach. You know, so uh, Professor Sewell. So so he it was accidental that I bumped into him, and uh, and he unfortunately well, he had compassion, and he said, "We can't leave." You know, a ten-year-old boy by himself in the middle of the ocean harbor, and the wars are going on. But come on, come with us. So I, I stuck with him and got to know his family, and but that's all part of the adventure, you know. And this time now I had some security, so that was a bonus. I never, I never really knew I was vulnerable. It never occurred to me that I was vulnerable, but in retrospect. Supposing he didn't appear in my life, 
what would have happened? I would be left in the street on Hong Kong Island, coming off the ferry. But that didn't happen. So this, this is the stage. This is where I really, how shall I say it, maximize on, on happiness. And even when I was in the prisoner war camp, it was the same thing. I had galore people around me, boys, kids, girls, running space. And no parents to say me, time to go to bed. Or no parents to say, go wash your, brush your teeth. I had no toothbrush. So that was sublime, but it wasn't good for me. <laughs> but you enjoyed a little bit of the, the guilty pleasure of the freedom you have. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's why I accentuated that. And when that was taken from me, when they shifted me to the refugee center, I resented that because if I was happy. Why do I have to go to another boarding school during the war? Right. Yeah. And you also uh, fondly recalled a few uh, friends you had. Actually, quite a few good friends are Eurasian uh, kids. Yes, yes. Uh, well, because um, starting to have connections with people, that meant something to me. And, uh, and even to this day, I think that they're dwindling, they're, they're passing away, and so on. And most of them are older than me. So survival has just occurred, you know, and then of course identity, now I'm starting to be 10 and going into my adolescence, I had to say, who am I? Because people are asking me. When I started putting my story together, it was only in Stanley, only the wartime, because that's all people wanted to hear, I mean expatriates wanted to hear, the historians. So when I did an essay about that, maybe 30 pages, Right away, I knew that there'd be many questions. So what about before? What about after? So that's what, how this book develops. I'm going to develop more here to anticipate questions. Because, well, most people used to say, well, were your parents missionaries in China? Or what were your parents doing in China? So I said, well, I don't know. So I had to do research, okay? And, and so I sort of, I didn't want my book to be a somber story. I wanted to show that the whole lifespan, that span, had all those, my voyage, and ups and downs, ups and downs, and ending positively, so that the reader would appreciate. I know when, when one of my old friends in England received a book, she said, she phoned me and said, Bob, I read your book. I, I bought it. I read your book. At first, I cried, and then I laughed. Then I cried some more, <laughs> and uh, and I treasure your book. So to me, that is quite an endorsement. But then that person I've known for some years, and as a friend, who didn't know all the ins and outs until I wrote it down. Yes. It's a really uh, lovely book with uh, so many detailed memories of your life and going through all the adversities, but also life events yeah. throughout. Uh, and it's uh, especially under very unusual circumstances in many cases. And you lived in internment camp, and uh, there were, maybe of course, Japanese soldiers and officers in your presence. Their treatment towards the, I guess, the internment camp uh, the civilian people. Camp civilian, was. yeah. It uh, wasn't too bad. It, 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 it was some bad situation. I mean, Sir Arthur Graeburn, he was in prison because he was 
supplying money to the uh, prisoners so they can buy more rations for themselves. So he was implicated in that, and he died in Stanley Camp. Uh, he was one of the richest men in Hong Kong at the time, so that was a tragic event. And he was a civilian, but I wasn't exposed to that until after the war. Until That's history. So uh, surviving the war was a great thing, but it also produced uncertainties. What was going to happen? Now, I'm, I was there at 10, and I'm 13 now, and then the order came in from the government that I'm going to go to England, so, and including my sisters, who were strangers to me, by the way. Anyway, so we went to England. To me, there's another adventure, and I was so happy, but I had to work hard at school and catch up. All junior high was, had to be done all in one year, okay? You must be really smart. <laughs> but was hard work. And, and working hard. Yeah. But then one pure happiness happened in my life in England that never happened in my life. All those years after mother died, I never had a celebration for my birthday. I never had gifts. Not that I cared because I wasn't used to it. But when I was given a brand new bicycle, I treasured that. And I kept it until I became an adult, and I gave it to a Chinese boy, and he cried. <laughs> so, but I, I can't forget that, that Mr. Murray Wilson and his two children, Petal and young Bobby, and that I was caring for them. And I, I just, to this day, it chokes me up when I think of it, you know? It's a precious gift. Yeah. And, and then you give it uh, to a boy who probably enjoyed it equally. Yes. Like yes, you did. Yes. And that, that was a boy in Hong Kong, yes, and the son yes, of a maid. Yes. Um, and you decided to return after the year of, uh, year in, in the UK, you decided to return to Hong Kong and later uh, studied to become a marine engineer. This is right. And my godmother at the time agreed to take me, she was returning to Hong Kong to resume her, her life working for a Belgian company, Ex, she's expatriate, and my sister did not offer to take me in England and care for me, and, uh, but she did. I don't know well how much enthusiasm she had, but she did, so I went with her. So because of that, I made a lot of effort to please her because she did that for me, and I, I, I was almost a servant for her for, for four or five years. But it, in the meantime, I was learning engineering. And she supported that side of it. All my earnings as an apprentice, I surrendered to her. She might have given me $10 a month, but I spent that on her mother. So I didn't keep a thing, just had my bicycle, and I would ride around the neighborhood in Kowloon Tong and in Kowloon side, Tai Chi Do, and, and watch kids playing baseball in the park. I, I, I couldn't participate because I couldn't re reciprocate any generosity from my peers because my, my godmother was, uh, I don't know her circumstances, and I don't think she was that very wealthy, and she never encouraged me to have a, a social life of my own. So as a teenager, I was deprived of the normal interaction with other teenagers. But that's okay. I was so well trained to adjust to that uh, adverse conditions. Eh? 
So that saw me through. But I was straining a little bit, and the Air Force volunteering helped me, me to, to associate with people for two weeks at a time, really camaraderies and learning with aeroplanes. And so when the time came, when I finished my apprenticeship, I was ready to go to the ships. But the only drawback in my whole life, I had the skills, I had the knowledge, I had the desire. What do you think was missing in my life? I had no maturity. I had no maturity. So when the accountant in the Jardine said to me, what do we do with your first salary? I says, what salary? He says, I want to pay you that I'm so happy now. I had, I had no idea. So I said, well, what shall we do? He said, well, we have a high cost of living allowance for all expatriates working in the Orient. That's cash coming to you, but your salary. So I said, wow, okay, let's put it in the bank. Okay, which bank? Well, make it a bank far away, say in London, England. So for about five years, I never touched my salary. I didn't even know what I had. So that was my immaturity. And I had to learn that from my shipmates. The captains became pseudo-fathers to me. Be careful you when you go to a port that you don't go to the bars and what have you. I was only 20 when I first went to sea. So, so learning curve, learning curve. And, and I was the youngest chief engineer in Jardines. And, but I didn't know what my responsibilities were. I just knew I had knowledge I could handle. But legally, they had to make me chief engineer. Yeah, you're quite skilled, and, and you had a very successful uh, career. Um, and, uh, and then also a, a, a loving family of your own and children. But you're, you're fascinating alive, and, and especially a lot of unusual circumstances and, and the hardship uh, that you had to live with and grew out of. Do you think that, and also especially the growing up uh, you had in Hong Kong during the war, helped shape your, your view on, on life and also the, the way uh, you see others around you? Yeah, I think, I think tolerance was what I, I learned that not to be not to be judgmental and when my own family was growing up here i was i stressed the fact that uh, since you don't have you don't need religion religion is, is of values that guide you through life and 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 they all have positive aspects i don't think i don't think any religion is evil but they have different emphasis and i say as far as i'm concerned you know, you just don't throw rocks when you live in a glass house. No. That's, in other words, do unto others as you would have. That's your own relig religion you get through life. And that's how I survived it. Eh? Yeah. It's wonderful. And you, of course, sailed around the world um, uh, as a um, chief marine engineer uh, and spent a lot of years at the sea. But eventually you decided, along with your, your wife, <laughs> to be on dry land. And you chose to, I guess you both chose to move to Canada. And, and you haven't really 
lived in Canada, I guess, before that very much. So what prompted you with that um, decision to move to Canada and then settle down in Canada? Yes, okay. At that point in time, when I got married, my wife was, uh, went, was ill, quite ill. It was normal, but uh, somehow the doctors misdiagnosed, so that cost me a lot of money without me realizing it. Then I was away when she was ill. I was in India, and she was hospitalized, and I was very, very upset. And then when I was first born in Hong Kong, and I wasn't home, I wasn't born you. So, okay, I said, well, I'm on my second contract with Jardines, and four years, and then we'll have our holidays for eight months. So I was into the second year. And, and then she became pregnant again. So I said to her, I don't want to be away. Once was enough, I, I'll give up the sea. I'll find a land job and start a new life. Question is where to go? Because I had no heritage to cling to. She had it. So most people used to go to Australia and start a new life. But my godmother was there, and I didn't want to go there. I had enough. So England was high unemployment at the time in 1959. So I investigated Canada, new country. I wanted to be under the, the, the crown. I didn't want to go to USA. So I thought, well, start a new life in Canada. I have a family on the way now, so I'll see if I can duplicate my successes in Canada as I have done in Hong Kong. And that was a driving force. It was a challenge, it was new, no hang-ups, no stigma, no, uh, you know, no baggage to worry about. Make yourself acceptable in the society you choose, prove your worth, and and live your life, and that's what I did. Wow. I mean, again, that was a new, brand new chapter of challenges, but also adventures. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you actually later started your own, your own business. Yes, after about 12 years, I worked for two companies, and then uh, and, uh, necessity dictated that I go to business so I can provide my family is growing. I eventually ended up with five children. I wanted to improve my education so that I can use my degree to enhance my position, but I couldn't do it because I had to earn money and I never borrowed money. I didn't know how to do that. So I did without. So only way to equal as a degreed person rising in their profession was to go into business for myself, which I don't need any qualification. I just need the skills to to run it and manage it, and I did that. Whereas I left the degreed acquaintances behind. Not that I looked down on it, because all my children have the degree, and I encourage that because it's extra security. What you use it for is up to you. Absolutely. But I didn't have it. I, I did qualify to get university entrance. 
I, I did meet the requirements at U of A, and I did attend some courses, but there again, with five children and being out of town a lot, uh, I, I got through it, I passed my exams, but I didn't go any further. Fascinating. I kind of sense from your, your book that um, throughout your life, you have been trying to find your identity in a way. Like what is, I mean, there, there are a lot of affiliations here and there. And did you find it's always a journey that you were kind of looking for that, who you are and what you belong? Well, not, not consciously. Uh, I made up my mind that I'm going to sink my roots here in Canada, and what I make out of it is what I am. So that was the only demand I made on myself. But like I said, in the, in the first 20 years was very, very hard. But after that, but then at the end of that time when, when, when my success in society uh, local society, I was uh, you know, acknowledged in being successful. Uh, I think I, I, I don't know. I, I never sought it. I didn't want I didn't want publicity because I didn't know how to handle it. Even even this is strange to me, uh, and I don't want to blow my own horn, so to speak. I don't need to, but if it helps somebody to to uh, benefit from my journey. It gives them encouragement. They don't give up. Be it a girl or a, or a guy, but the young people, I I feel a soft spot for because that was my rough years. No, not necessarily my rough years, but that's what I, that's when I survived. Eh? You mentioned that the proceeds of the book will go to schools in Hong Kong, and you'll be visiting uh, there soon. And of course, given what's uh, been going on for the past couple months in Hong Kong, I'm sure you're eager to, to go visit and to see the place that you spent so many uh, years of your life in. But what do you want to see happen to Hong Kong um, as, a, I mean, it was your home for many years? Yes, yes. I, I, feel, I feel for Hong Kong in the sense that I have such an affinity for the people of Hong Kong. And I, I always seek them in Canada. For example, I was over in TNT and I had Juk for lunch and went to a little dining area and full, but there was a, a couple. So I asked them, do you mind if I sit in the same table? And they said no. And they were from China. And so to me, it was so natural that I would talk to them. Of course, he was from North China, and the lady was also from North China, young, and they, I think they got their degree, and they're moving to Red Deer, so you know, I, I feel so comfortable with talking with the, uh, my past helped me to, to relate to, to uh, Chinese people. It doesn't matter what part of China they come in, I'm, I'm happy in their company. And I wish I could speak Mandarin. <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from that point of view, I'm content with what I'm doing. I've learned how to to come to peace with myself. I do not need to have a vibrant society. I can do without extra activities. 
people, I can immerse myself in my memories, I can read a book and be not unhappy. Concerning what I've been through, I, I thank God every day when I wake up and I can come here. I, today it was drizzly. Doesn't matter, behind all this, the sky is blue. The sun is shining all the time. That's that's amazing, and um, of course there there's a fair bit of chaos in Hong Kong. And and do you see a way out for Hong Kong? Do you see, um, you know, do you hope to see some sort of compromise that uh, well, will come I, to? Well, I fear for the Hong Kongers in Hong Kong because by the terms of the handover, it's a definite period of time, and then they have to be absorbed by Beijing which is agreed to, and I'm just praying that the young people don't spoil any gains they might have made. Maybe I, I have no idea really what to think. I watch it. I've been through one riot in my book in 1956, October the 10th. My birthday is on the 11th, and uh, the, the, I think the faction was between the nationalists and the communists in Hong Kong. In, in 1956, so I I, I didn't fear. Although the the, the bus driver, the, the bus emptied up with all passengers, and he said hide under the seats while we're going through the district where the riot was taking place. The Swiss ambassador's or Swiss consul's wife was burnt in a car in Jordan Road and Nathan Road. So I saw the charred remains of the. I was joining my ship in the in the harbor. So coming back to, to what I feel about now, I, I was talking to Cindy Tang last night, the night before, and she was telling me what she felt about the disturbance. So she said there's no Canadian government advisory issued yet for, for visiting Hong Kong. So it's the same, as, same advisory for London, New York, Paris, and Hong Kong, same level. So based on that, I'm going to go and and present my book and meet the two uh, the two schools and hopefully be able to give a speech in Cantonese to to some of the class when I get there and they are expecting me to to come. So November the eighth, I fly out and November the tenth Sunday is a Remembrance Day ceremony in the cenotaph. And Monday, I, I do my launch of the book at the museum in Hong Kong. That would be a really um, also a very interesting time to be in Hong Kong. Yes. And uh, and is it, when was the last time you were in Hong Kong? Oh, uh, I was there two years ago. And, and a lot, while I was working on this book, I was going out uh, quite often. I interviewed people in London, no, in England, Oxford in London, for my book, so um, yes, I uh, I go back. I have my mother's grave. I upgraded my mother's grave about five years ago. I dealt with a contractor in Aberdeen, and they did it. And I went back to have a look at it. My family has been out to see where where I got married, where I lived. Of course, where I lived was no more. So all high rises, eh? And the Kowloon Wall City is not there anymore. It used to be the Wall City. It was famous, you know. 
and so has changed a lot and and I don't recognize but there's some residues left of the old days but very very few going to new territories possibly but that's changing also Shatin, Taipo, they're all changing rapidly. Whereas before there used to be rural villages, you know. <laughs> it's a, a pretty much a concrete jungle now. I know, yeah. I know, yeah. And people commute because the cost of living is so high for the for the public in Hong Kong. I don't know why it's so expensive. And they crammed into high rises, small cubicles and and of course they look after the parents, so they gotta cram them in. So life is not very, very nice for, for many people there, and they're resenting it. But that's politics. I don't get involved in politics. I listen, because I know nobody listened to me when I was there, but I will listen to anybody who wants to talk about it. And, and a tour guide was talking about how she had to get government subsidy to pay her rent. So give her extra tip. What more could I do? You know. So I'm sure you would enjoy your trip that is yeah. coming up very soon. Yeah. I'd like to thank you so so much for coming today to talk about your book and to also share with us your fascinating life story. Thank you, Auntie. I, I I'm honored for this opportunity. This is my first effort to discuss this. I have a few more coming up one in January and uh, and maybe three in Hong Kong and uh, that I'll be giving a similar talk but thank you for for your kindness thank you